about the Supreme Consciousness, which he, by calling by the name of Ishvara, as we have clarified in our last lecture, he presents it at the same time as a universal consciousness and at the same time under the form of a God that we can relate with in a personal way. And uh, he, in the Sutra number 24, he told us that this supreme cosmic consciousness of Ishvara is a special infinite spirit untouched by afflictions, uh, karmas, their traces and the fruits of them, which automatically defines a special condition of this divine consciousness. And then he's going to the next level. He is telling us in the sutra number 25 the following. In Ishvara, again, he keeps talking about this fundamental reality that is our goal. In Ishvara, or the Lord, in the cosmic consciousness, the seed of limitless omniscience reaches its acme. Therefore, it's a kind of a twisted way of saying that at the level of the divine consciousness, we are confronted, we are faced with omniscience, with the possibility of knowing everything, with the all-knowing consciousness. Of course, we are aware that the divine consciousness in various traditions has been described as the all-knowing consciousness of God, as the all-knowing I of God, uh, that we are speaking about qualities such as omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, as characteristic qualities of the divine. What uh, Patanjali says, therefore, is only a confirmation, a further confirmation, that he is indeed speaking here about the ultimate consciousness. Only at the level of this ultimate consciousness, which often in our text in the Yoga Sutra here, it is called Purusha, and which in the Vedantic Yoga is expressed rather by the term Atman, the Self, the real Self, the Supreme Self, only at that level can we speak about the attainment of omniscience. This element is discussed in our lecture um, in the second month of yoga at this time, in this present program, which is speaking about the philosophical basis of the yoga system. There, if you remember, and I'm not going to go through that whole thing, because that is more of a metaphysical discussion. Um, there, I said, um, we spoke, we mentioned the fact that actually knowledge, it can be either quantitative or qualitative. We have even made a slight graphic demonstration that if we compare Atman, Purusha, the Supreme Self, with the center of the universe, with like the bull's eye, with like the top of a mountain, it is only from that center that any form of knowledge becomes available all around without any quantitative implication. We said as long as knowledge is involved at a different level, it automatically will have a limit. 
because it needs to cover a certain expanse in time and space, which means the knowledge at the level of the explicit knowledge, this objective knowledge that we call our reasoning power and our mental knowledge, is automatically limited. It is limited simply because we have a limited scope in time. Our life on this, in this body cannot be longer than a certain limit. We are having a certain scope in space. We cannot be bigger than this or that. And then automatically the knowledge which can come through this instrument, which is the body, uh, is automatically a limited knowledge. And we said, I said at that time, that actually the knowledge about which the yogis are talking about is a kind of essential knowledge. We have compared it with the fact that you can obtain the essential knowledge of any form of knowledge, such as, for example, somebody who has reached, reaching at the level of the self, reaching at the level of the Buddha nature, reaching at the level of this center of all reality, reaching at the level of this bull's eye, which is in the middle of all the circles of existence of this universe, reaching at the level of this top of the mountain, which is again... Atman or Purusha, from there one can have a 360 degrees vision, view around, thus technically, potentially at least, knowing everything. We said at that level that omniscience, that which the spiritual texts often mention as being one of divine characteristics, omniscience is not a quantitative uh, epithet, but it is something rather qualitative. This is one of the famous mistakes which is done by people, because many people believe that automatically the states of high consciousness, and in particular the states of samadhi and self-realization, are automatically supposed to give a sort of omniscience which is quantitative which would mean technically that if anybody on this planet ever has reached samadhi, full-fledged samadhi, that person should become instantaneously able at least to speak all the languages of the world and the dialects and sub-dialects and definitely to be able to master all the sciences and arts which are ever existing in this world. Or a simple analysis of the lives of those who have undoubtedly reached such levels shows that actually they have not been there, which means the omniscience which is so vaunted, this omniscience which is praised in the spiritual text, it is actually a potential omniscience. It is like recognizing the essence of everything, having a knowledge, understanding it, because everything that we are and everything that everybody else in this universe is and everything that the universe itself is, is nothing else but an emanation of the Supreme Self. And therefore, if we don't understand the Self, if we don't understand the Void, if we don't understand the hub of the cosmic wheel, this emptiness which is in the middle of all the spokes of manifestation, if we don't understand this Buddha nature which is central to the manifestation, then automatically we cannot understand where did all those things come from, starting with physical things and finishing with emotional, mental and all kind of other things. 
And that is why, of course, here we are coming back to the famous Socratic injunction, know thyself, because this is indeed, by knowing thyself, you know the universe and its mysteries. And here we are coming, of course, to Lao Tzu, who says the one who knows uh, external things and others is strong, but the one who knows himself is truly, truly strong, realized, effective. Therefore, uh, here, if you remember, this issue has been explicitated a little bit into that philosophical presentation, because actually the omniscience which is mentioned by yoga and by all spirituality is not quantitative. A quantitative type of omniscience can be manifested only in the presence of certain siddhis or paranormal powers of the mind, which may be there or may be absent. There have been enormous yogis, enormous from the standpoint of their spiritual realization, such as Ramana Maharishi as a legendary example, who at the same time had absolutely no exceptional paranormal abilities. Therefore, this shows that these two are not linked to each other. As I explained, for those of you who have never heard clearly that lecture, or who, have, who cannot remember the details of going deeper into that, we said at that time that basically this knowledge is exactly like a knowledge of the essence. If somebody understands where communication and language comes from, what is the archetype of that, the purusha, the non-manifested aspect of that, the noumenal aspect of that, then automatically one technically has an understanding of all the forms of communication of this universe. Either that I, we are talking about thousands of languages and dialects, or that we are talking about the language of the animals, or the language of the trees, or the language of nature, or for the case, the language of stars and planets, which is astrology. Everything is a language, ultimately, and it's like this communication is coming from a principle which is transcendent. Understanding that gives us an approach to this, but it doesn't automatically make us know them explicitly, unless we either study them specifically, or we employ a paranormal capability. That is why this statement is true, but it is true in another way than uninformed people believe it. Uninformed people continue to believe that reaching a state of superconsciousness automatically gives to one all the qualifications and all the knowledge and everything in manifested ways. First of all, that that is impossible even by brain capacity or other limitations which exist in this physical world. What results? There results a certain disponibility, exactly as somebody can identify the flavor of things and realize, hey, this is coming from the same universal reality. There is nothing new under the sun. I understand what this is. I understand where it comes from. I understand its possibility. And if I should apply myself to it, I would be able to get to understand it in almost no time. But else, again and again, remember that this is not a quantitative manifestation. Omniscience 
doesn't mean that you know in actual fact. It means that you potentially are liable to connect any form of that knowledge with the Supreme Self, thus understanding its root, its germ, the germ of that knowledge. This is significant because it takes away a lot of prejudices and a lot of phantasmagoric expectations that some people have about this. Therefore, this statement, it is true, and Patanjali tells us, in Purusha, it is in the consciousness of Ishvara, the Lord, that the seed of limitless omniscience reaches its acme. Therefore, we can talk about the state of omniscience once we reach that. But again, uh, simple analysis shows us that this omniscience is not quantitative, but it is qualitative. In this way, in the same way, you can ask yourselves what, uh, for example, a person like, uh, why not a great uh, enlightened being or somebody who is in a peculiar position in life, what would they know about the subject of life which they have never approached? Like, at least as far as we know, historically, in spite of all these modern-day controversies, Jesus is not apparent, and yet he speaks authoritatively about everything, marriage, relationship, parenthood, education, everything. And if, we, if you don't want to take Jesus as example of this, you can take others who have been into clearly into that condition. And therefore you ask yourself, how did they know? Where did they know all those things from? You can even doubt asking yourself, hey, where did they get the authority to speak about things? Where from did they get the authority to talk about things which they have never experienced in this life? And therefore they didn't know much about it, because this is precisely the essence of omniscience. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa did not have children, but he understood more about the spiritual parenthood through his education of his disciples than somebody who actually had children and being unwise has remained at the foolish level where his only opinion about parenthood is that you have to give candy to children when they cry for them. And therefore, it is like a man like Ramakrishna and a woman like Sarada Devi, if you want to put it from both angles, they understand something starting from the level of Sahasrara, starting from the level of Purusha, starting from the level of this Samadhi level. This is the way this omniscience is to be understood. It's like understanding the essence of all things, and then everything which comes is not a surprise. It's like expected, it's just like a variation of a given thing. Exactly as the knower, an ultimate knower in plants, or I don't know what, in types of honey, or in, uh, I don't know, brands of wine or something, would kind of know everything there is to be known about it and be able to identify them without being surprised, being always able to say, oh, this is this type of honey, it is a little bit more pita, it is because it's coming from this type of bees and from this type of plants and it will still have this kind of effect because I kind of know about everything there is to known to be known about honey. In this way, this is uh, a reconfirmation by Patanjali that here we are dealing with a level of supra-conscience 
of superconsciousness, which is uh, related to omniscience. The next sutra is no less impressive because he keeps talking about this level which he identifies with the cosmic consciousness, with God if you prefer, and the next enunciation which he makes about it is again radical and beautiful. He says, not being limited by time, he is the guru of the earliest gurus, the guru of the first gurus. This is illustrated uh, in uh, the Indian yoga tradition by terms like Parama Guru or Adi Guru, Adi Guru, Primordial Guru, First Guru, Parama Guru, Supreme Guru, uh, Guru above all Gurus, which basically simply says that the cosmic consciousness having no beginning and no end, no past and present and future, is equally present at any time in all ways, and therefore anybody who has ever discovered this level of consciousness automatically has been confronted with one and the same. This is a way of saying that the divine consciousness, or God if you prefer, never changes, because at the level of something which is infinite, perfect, absolute, beyond time of the nature of eternity and so on, some such a reality never changes. It is perfect from ever and ever until ever and ever. And therefore, this reality is like Jesus has called it, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of all things. And thus, uh, what we can say here is that, of course, ultimately then this is the spiritual guide of all spiritual guides. Either those who have been guided by a human guru or those who have been spontaneously realizing the nature of the self, for all of them, because there is no limitation of space and time and of other fine things which Patanjali doesn't mention here, such as causality, authorship, limit in satisfaction and other such things which Kashmir Shaivism mentions more in detail, then automatically, and since we are talking about that is the level of omniscience, where everything springs from and where qualitatively there is the root of all knowledge, then automatically that is the level which is the guru of all gurus. That is why in India, a little bit in Tibet also, they have a peculiar way of putting it because of the Buddhist literature, because of the Buddhist nature of their spiritual literature, but especially in India, Whenever you go along the lineages of all yoga, you discover that at the end of the all lineages, the first guru of all the lineages is always the divine person. Called by various names, according to different traditions, most often one of the forms of Shiva. Shiva is a kind of preferred personality of this Adi guru, of this Parama guru. Uh, Shiva in the tantric tradition and in the yogic tradition representing way beyond the mythological character, representing an archetypal image of something which represents the universal consciousness. And therefore, here Patanjali, in, even, in, even in his text, in his fundamental treatise on yoga, informs us that ultimately the gurus are only 
temporary transient instruments, waves on the ocean of universal consciousness that are meant to transmit a knowledge which is not theirs, which they have not invented, which they have not discovered. At the best, they have rediscovered some fundamental ideas, some fundamental truths from this great truth, but that actually always the fundamental guru is the divine consciousness. The divine consciousness being in the beginning, in the end, in the alpha and the omega of all the lineages, of all the teachings, of all the spirituality, and thus being the source of all of them. There is nothing, therefore, which comes out of this. There is no knowledge which doesn't ultimately, no real spiritual knowledge which doesn't ultimately come from the divine consciousness and its human sources are only temporary channels of transmission of that fundamental truth. Therefore, with this, uh, Patanjali has given us, because he has said, you have to meditate upon the Lord and you have to surrender to the Lord in the Sutra number 23, where he said that you can reach Asamprajnata Samadhi by Ishvara Pranidana, by this surrender. And how can you surrender to something which you do not understand? But in the moment when Patanjali says, this is a special spirit, infinite spirit, untouched by any of those impurities and elements, here the seed of omniscience reaches its totality. This is the guru of the earliest gurus not being aff affected or afflicted, limited by time and other such limitations. Automatically, then Patanjali has done this to encourage that people's attitude that they can surrender to the Supreme Consciousness. Well, if this is what the Supreme Consciousness is, then it is so easy to surrender. It is very easy to surrender to the Guru of the Universe, to the Guru of all Gurus, to the Spirit that enlightens this Universe. It is very easy to surrender to the Spirit which is the omniscient Spirit of this Universe. And it is so very easy to surrender to this ultimate Spirit which is pure Spirit, untouched by karma, klesha and all those uh, difficulties, all those impurities. Therefore, uh, Patanjali gave us a wonderful conceptual meditation on the cosmic consciousness as seen through the person of Ishvara, the Lord, as I said, the most classical image of God, especially in Hinduism in his time, but not only. And then the Sutra number 27 is one of the other great monuments in Yoga Sutra. It's one of the few sutras that you remember. As I said in the beginning, if ever you will remember one sutra from Yoga Sutra, you most probably are going to remember the one where Patanjali says, Yoga Chitavriti Niroda. Yoga means the arresting of the movements of the mind, the very second sutra, which is definitory for everything which he understands by yoga, both as practice, system, goal, and state of samadhi. But if you are going ever beyond one sutra memorization, and if you remember a few, the one which is coming next is definitely another one of the big landmarks in the Yoga Sutra. This one is the foundation, it is the confirmation, it is becoming, it's going together with the pillars of the Hindu spirituality, 
end of the Hindu type of yoga. Much of it has been, of course, taken taken by uh, Buddhist yoga, by the Tibetan yoga and others. This sutra is concluding this meditation upon Ishvara. Like I told you a few things about <coughs> Ishvara, the power, the consciousness of God, as much as that can be expressed in a manifested way, because it's obvious that there are many things which cannot be rendered by word or by mental ideas, since that consciousness is way beyond uh, that. And now he is giving us one more hint, which is actually one of the first practical hints that we encounter in Yoga Sutra. Yoga Sutra, for you now, by now you have reached to the middle of the first chapter, and I'm sure for some of you it sounds as very intelligent, very deep, very metaphysical, even informative, if you meditate on all the implication of the sutras, inspiring. Yes, maybe it's a bit of a severe or uh, austere text, a bit of a serious text. Uh, some people would say almost like dry, but uh, definitely many people cannot say like much practice from it. Like it's a yogic text, but it's more like a yogic text that defines the context but it's not really teaching us, do this and you'll reach that. And suddenly here, Patanjali comes with some practical thing, because there is no real yogi who would not say something at least practical, so that people can actually use it and explore for themselves. And here, Patanjali in the Sutra number 27, again one of the landmark ones, from the first chapter, says... The pranava, which is actually a code word for the legendary Hindu mantra, Aum. Uh, this is, let's make a parenthesis here before we go further. Many of you have got to know, and the more you go in the yoga tradition, you are going to see that exception made the scholars and the modern authors, who, because of the superficiality of their readers, and because of the haste in which we live, sometimes explicitly write mantras down the way they are. The traditionalists in Indian yoga generally avoided, even in Sanskrit, to write the mantras as such. So actually, you are not going to find this mantra, the famous mantra Aum, this excellent mantra Aum. Even Patanjali, he does not say Aum. He says the Pranava, and of course you are supposed to know what the pranava is. The pranava is like a nickname of the mantra Aum, so that it's kind of, we talk allusively about it. He doesn't say Aum is whatever, he says the pranava, and if you are a total outsider, then you don't even know what is this pranava that he's talking about. So the pranava, which of course it's very well known in the yogic circles, the mantra Aum, is the mantra denoting God, is the mantra denoting that Ishvara. Basically, Patanjali reveals a fundamental secret. According to his system, according to his perception of yoga, which is highly authorized, he defines that the mantra Aum, which is a cultural legend, we will speak uh, in a second about a few of its implications, that mantra is the sonorous image, the sonorous representation of 
this of Ishvara, the cosmic consciousness about which he kept speaking in the last four sutras until now. And therefore, with this, actually Patanjali gives us a fundamental reality. He tells us with the mantra Aum, you can express the divine consciousness of Ishvara, and therefore whoever learns to use this will understand, will be able to reach there. It is true that Patanjali, as you will see immediately, does not really describe clearly the practice of a mantra, what to do with it, this being one of the technicalities of mantra yoga, and especially of laya yoga and nada yoga. You, throughout these yoga courses that you are part of, you have been taught about how, what the lost secret of mantras is, how to use them, and how to go, how to obtain the results from them, this is much more important than you would believe, because today, even in India, this knowledge is vastly lost. Many people, when they are confronted with mantras, and I am not going to turn back to the Laya Yoga lecture, but just to allude to it, they cannot even see the difference between the mantras of yoga, the Bija mantras of meditation, and the long mantras, which are devotional formulas, and uh, they cannot even understand precisely how mantras are going to be used. Uh, many people still believing ridiculously that mantras are being used with loud voice, by incantation, by singing, by mumbling, by repetition, by writing them down, and all kind of other methods, which, uh, just to make things, to, re to refresh things, to make things clear again, are methods which are extremely slow and rather primitive uh, in comparison to the yoga practice. This is one of the sadnesses, it is one of the facts which shows uh, how the spiritual culture can decay, because even in spite of the fact that, um, okay, yoga has been decaying a lot and there is a lot of... Uh, um, misinterpretation or perversion of the spirit of yoga, either when it is transformed into a simple materialistic fitness gymnastics or something like this. Nevertheless, the text of Patanjali is a text which is unanimously recognized as being an authoritative text in yoga. And uh, ne although this text gives us already in the first chapter a presentation that this is the mantra by which this is attained, and even says a few further words about it, as you will see, you would expect that, whoa, everybody should be crazy about this one. This one should be on kind of the first priority of everybody who does Patanjala Yoga and uh, more or less classical yoga, because it's undeniable, and the translation of this sutra is not... Uh, uh, an unclear translation or controversial translation or anything. And yet, it is not quite so. Then we are being told by great yogis like Paramahamsa Yogananda, he speaks with utter reverence about Aum as a fundamental sound, and I'm going to convey some of his ideas to you as well. Shivananda again confirms, Mananda Maish, he also confirms, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, he claims he 
kind of reconfirms that while he was in the state of superconsciousness or one of his states of samadhi, he perceived the sound of Aum as the basic tonic of the universe and all those things which uh, you might know more or less of. But basically what I'm trying to say here is if that is the case, why isn't at least this famous Aum meditation properly taught everywhere in the world? Every yoga course which pretends itself a little bit serious should teach it. And should teach it like, uh, you know, you meditate and this is something which puts you directly in resonance with Ajna, Sahasrara, the entrance points to the divine consciousness. And yet it isn't. When it is given, it is given a ritual, it is given with loud voice, very often pronounced as Om, 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 and stuff like this. And many people, if they would just be sitting and mumbling Om, Om, or something, they do not really notice that they go deep, that they feel a divine presence, that they actually are in contact with something essential. They at the best feel some vague vibrational effect, such as my skull is vibrating because I'm mumbling the letter M when I'm saying this Om or something. And therefore, here we are having an actual big problem. This shows how far, how, how far the forgetfulness in the yoga tradition itself has gone, that although the information is there, all the connections between this mantra, the nada, the inaudible sounds, how to merge with this nada, and all these things, they are very often lost. There are very few teachers, ashrams, schools, even in India, that teach at least a little bit of the rational, practical, completely complete information about this methodology. And that is uh, why, unfortunately for many people, OM has become more like a cultural thing. You can tattoo OM on your chest or on your arm. You can do I don't know what, and from time to time you can say OM, OM. But that's where it remains, and it does not become the powerful instrument of meditation that it has meant to be. Let's look a little bit into it. This sound is considered by many traditions, several yogic traditions, as being the basic tonic of the universe. Here, if you would have a little bit of um, um, understanding of oscillation, wave, sounds, vibrations, as in physics, as in natural science, uh, you would realize that if all, the, if all this universe is considered as being created by a primordial word, by a primordial speech logos, by a primordial sound, um, automatically, in terms of vibration, we are having to talk about a tonic of the universe, an original frequency, which then multiplies, multiplicates, duplicates, it creates its harmonics and ranges and series of frequencies, and thus generates all this endless uh, panorama of the universe. Uh, that basic tonic, it's like if you boil down all the vibrations of the universe to the basic sound of this universe, is stated to be this nada, this fundamental sound which corresponds to the mantra 
Aum. And therefore, uh, such sound is automatically extremely spiritual and extremely important. And that is why it is a very, very recommended thing, and it is, of course, uh, a basic thing, that the human being should learn to meditate. This teaching about Aum as being a mantra which denotes this higher consciousness, besides some of the peculiar teachings which uh, Patanjali gives us in the third chapter about the development of the mind and the capacities of the mind, besides the many, many psychological and uh, methodological teachings that Patanjali gives to us in the second chapter, as you will see, about the levels of yoga, the uh, steps of the yoga development, automatically this one, this information, is one of the most important, and you can take it as, hey, this is the only important thing which I have got at least from the Yoga Sutra, that Patanjali says that this sound is denoting the divine consciousness, and therefore I can use it because whatever everybody would ever say, at least according to one of the solid authorities in yoga, this mantra definitely represents something fundamental and something spiritual. Uh, therefore, it is uh, very important to think that this Aum represents a tone, represents a tone of vibration which is like the original one from which all the others are developments. That's exactly what Ramakrishna himself says. Ramakrishna says Aum is the fundamental tone of the universe and all the other sounds of the universe, audible or inaudible, are just subsequent developments coming from that sound. It's like a seed that sprouts. Everything is like a tree, a huge plantain tree, but it actually originally came from the seed, and that seed was Aum itself. The importance of this stone is exalted by all the great yogis. Uh, the Upanishads, first of all, the Upanishadic texts uh, are very much around this concept, which makes that the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali is a kind of a sister text with many of the Upanishadic texts, because they share the same fundamental truth. And uh, at the same time, there exists so much speculation about the nature of this fundamental mantra, which is useful to mention, because in the next sutra, Patanjali actually requires this. Paramahamsa Yogananda, of whom I have promised that I am going to quote a few words from the wisdom of whom I was going to quote a few words, Paramahamsa Yogananda goes as far as saying that this Aum is such a fundamental tech, uh, sound that all the seers of this planet have had a perception of it and that they have noticed that there exists some sort of background sound which would be related to the divine, and Paramahamsa Yogananda claims no more and no less that the famous particle of speech, which is Amen, from Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, is actually inspired by the old Kabbalists and the old seers of the Old Testament, still from the mantra Aum, that actually Aum and Amen are one and the same thing, 
uh, Aum being entirely correct Sanskritologically, that means as value of the phonemes implied, and Amen, uh, or the different forms as it is pronounced in different languages, dialects, and vernaculars, being more or less a distortion, a slight distortion of that. Like we are having A and U, and then this nasal M, A, um, with a nasalization, and amen, amen, mn, it would be the same thing. For many people, it seems to be a speculative thing. Paramahamsa Yogananda held this opinion from his guru, Sri Yukteswar, and partly from the guru of his guru, Lahiri Mahasaya. And uh, basically, uh, this opinion has been encountered in other great yogis that actually this is a foundational sound. I have had the curiosity of going through some of the literature of the Christian mystics and even confronting some of the living Christian mystics who had uh, already done this study, so I didn't have to do all the homework because somebody had done it already, and to ask them what was their opinion, what was the theological what was the established opinion throughout their theology and religion about this famous word, Amen? Where did it come from? How did it appear? Why would you always say a prayer and in the end you would say Amen? Why is this an important word? Because many people interpret it like you would say, well, so be it or something like this. But wait a second, it doesn't really mean that etymologically. There are all kind of approximations, but etymologically, clearly, it doesn't go there. And then, uh, I remember one of the most far-out answers which I have got to this, uh, was that one of these people, who was a very sincere mystic, they never had the feeling that they were pulling my leg, or that they were telling a tall story, a tall tale, or something like this. It was simply what they knew, and to them it was enough, that actually there is somewhere above a bird, a kind of divine bird, an angel, whatever it is, which surrounds, which circambulates the planet, and all the time it screams, Amen, 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 Amen. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of a background sound, because there is a sort of rock bird, or a phoenix bird, or something like this, kind of a magic bird, which is uh, flying up in the stratosphere all the time shouting Amen, Amen, Amen. And that's a kind of a God's creature. The meaning being that, hey, on this planet there is a kind of a background sound that you can't get away from and that's a bird from God or whatever. Doesn't really matter, that's just another story, it's just another legend, particularized legend. But basically, that's where it comes, that we are having, from, that we are having a background sound. Well, this background sound in yoga, in tantra, has been interpreted as much more technically, because they were not willing to swallow tall, bizarre stories about birds flying in the stratosphere and singing some divine word or something like this, and therefore they interpreted it more, uh, uh, scientifically, if you prefer, as a kind of tonic sound, as a kind of basic harmonic sound of the universe from where everything uh, develops. Surely, 
There exist many speculations even about that. There are modern parapsychologists and researchers in the brain technology who have studied all kind of frequencies of sounds and such things, trying to find out which are the most significant harmonics. I don't know if you are aware of the fact that there is a research about a basic sound of the universe. I even have it recorded on one of the CDs here, uh, where, I don't know, the Voyager space station or something, by, of course, electronic processing, they have been uh, recording the sound of the universe, because there exists even a sound of the void. And, of course, when you listen to it, processed is just like a low-pitch humming sound, like it's just something like this, but that is proceeding directly from a recording done in the empty space, done in the outer space, by some interplanetary uh, or station, or something like this. What am I trying to say? There are all kinds of attempts to define some fundamental things, like the basic vibration of the universe, which these guys put on this uh, orbital station, which was going to Alpha Centauri, and they made this uh, engraving with a human being and something, and so on. They put there as basic unit of length, the wavelength of the oscillation of hydrogen, because hydrogen is the biggest element in the whole universe, and it has its basic frequency, its basic wavelength in the spectrum, in the spectral radiation of hydrogen, it's one which is 21 centimeters in wavelength, and then they thought that anybody in this universe would find that, would get, will get to think about the wavelength of the hydrogen, thus establishing some sort of common standard in communication. What I am trying to say here is that, of course, either scientifically or mystically, people have thought about what would be a basic tonality and uh, then, of course, to equate that, perhaps, in the mysticism of yoga, that mostly with the energy of Aum. Uh, this uh, will continue, of course, uh, here Gurdjieff has his speculations about the musical octaves and the laws that govern that. We cannot go into all those details. Uh, actually, I have to say that until now, this scientific or pseudo-scientific speculation or research has not yet led to formidable results. There are some people who studying these vibrations, they claim that they have got some healing sounds. Uh, many of these things are just New Age stuff, which is not having any clear justification, all in all. What is important is to look a little bit into this structure uh, of why the mantra Aum, what is the story with the mantra Aum? We are unable to look at it from the standpoint of the meaning of the phonemes, because to be able to, for you to be able to understand the Sanskrit structure of this mantra, why is it so special, we would have to study enormously in terms of what the Tantric theory of India calls phonemics. This is something which when you'll be more advanced in yoga, if you'll ever join a course in Kashmir Shaivism, that's where you'll find, among others, this kind of speculation on the Sanskrit uh, for names and their value in spiritual ways and all these kind of things. 
therefore, we are not going to make a phonemic analysis, why a, why u, why a u, why a um, and what is the story. It suffices here to say that most of the scholarly analysis of the mantra Aum mention very clearly that this mantra must be made of three different parts. It's a triadic mantra, exactly as the triadic nature of the divine. And actually, to be more clear, and this is a pattern which you need to remember, because you'll encounter often in the high metaphysical speculations of India, partly of Tibet, partly of the Western traditions of Kabbalah, Pythagoreanism, and others, sacred geometry and others, uh, that this is uh, this divine proportion, this divine harmony, is illustrated by a number which is three point something. Three and something which is not yet a number. In uh, mathematics, this is actually known very clearly. This is the famous number pi from geometry. Many people don't see any connection. They say, well, isn't that just a coincidence? No, they are not coincidences, and this is not a forced one. The number pi in geometry has the significance of transferring from finite to infinite, because ultimately one of the simple meanings of it is that if you have a polygon inscribed in a circle, and that polygon is a square, a hexagon, an octagon, a dodecagon, and so on, with more and more sides, the more sides you put to that polygon, it more and more resembles to a circle, and therefore the total length of its sides tends to the length of the circle. But actually, to calculate the length of a circle, you need to multiply one of the known dimensions of it by the number pi number, which is actually what is called even in mathematics today, and it's not a coincidence, <coughs> because many mathematicians have been numerologists and occultists, such as Pythagoras, but by far not the only one, uh, the number pi is called today in mathematics a transcendent number, because actually the number pi, while being finite because it's somewhere three point something, it is at the same time infinite. It is a number whose end has not been found, and technically speaking can never be found. And that is why you have three point, and then there comes something which is infinite, <coughs> irrepeatable, completely, completely creative, like the sequence of the number pi, it's having no periodicity, no rule, no <coughs> repetition, no nothing. It's simply an infinite, almost random looking, but of course it's not random, it comes from mathematics, definition of numbers. And until now, you know, that computers and scientists have calculated, I don't know how many millions or billions of decimals after the comma, after the dot of the number pi, and that's just a mathematical game without end, because it never really ends. And therefore, in the number pi, unsuspectedly, we are having a measure which is actually making uh, a contact with something transcendent. That is why in, sac in sacred numerology, and especially in sacred geometry, 
the number pi is used to create all kind of radionic and significant geometric structures. For example, the secret which gives the power to the pyramids, to the great pyramid and the pyramid effect, the pyramid energy, is that the ratio between the basic dimensions, the height and the uh, base uh, breadth of the basis of the pyramids is actually illustrated precisely by the number pi. And therefore, even in the Egyptian pyramids, they are built on having as basis this number pi, which means a sacred geometry, a transcendent geometry. And that's why as a result of it, under a pyramid which has those proportions and none others, automatically one is getting a very special energy which has measurable radionic parapsychologic properties. Where am I going uh, with this? I'm going by telling that this has been expressed in the Indian mysticism a lot by the famous story of three things plus something. A lot of things are three plus something. For example, there are three worlds of the universe, the physical worlds, the subtle worlds, and the causal worlds, plus something. God, the Atman, the divine world, which is none of those, and which is something which is transcendent, immeasurable, infinite. You can measure the physical world, you can measure the astral world, you can even measure the causal world, but you cannot measure the divine because that's something transcendent. In the same way, a lot of things come by three. Uh, there are three things which illustrate a triadic nature. In India, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva is three aspects of God. Uh, Icha, Jnana, Kriya, the three basic energies. The three Vedantic qualificatives of the divine consciousness, Sat, Chit, Ananda. And the list can continue, it's almost endless. From this there comes a great pleasure of the Hindus to classify many, many things, like Rajas, Tamas, Sadva, Pita, Kapha, Pita, Vata, and everything, in three, in sets of three, that sets of three define a unit. But besides these sets of three, there is something which is ineffable, inexpressible, transcendent, and which cannot be measured or represented properly. That is why even in Hinduism, you are having a symbol which was used by the ancient Jews and it remained used in Christianity and uh, even in Islam, one which was taken over by the Hermetists and the Gnostics of Alexandria and of the Eastern Mediterranean, and it is used even by all kinds of occult organizations until today, as a symbol of the divine, but it's funny that Ramakrishna in Hinduism describes it just the same, so it's a universal symbol in which the divine nature is represented as a triangle, which again is a symbol of three, whichever way you take it, a triangle, and in the middle of this triangle you have something which is extra on top of those three, and which is something which is the infinite part, that part which is the immeasurable part. And therefore, either this is represented in the Western tradition very often, like the eye of God. You have a triangle, and in the middle of the triangle there is an all-seeing eye, 
that I representing actually the Purusha, the Ishvara, the infinite, this infinite perfect spirit of the divinity, which is not part of those three. It's three plus something. Then automatically the mantra Aum could not escape being a symbol of the divine. It's true an auditory symbol, but still a symbol could not escape this. Automatically the mantra Aum had to be made out of three things, and why not three things plus something mysterious, ineffable, which is beyond. Those three things are necessarily always been the three phonemes of the mantra Aum, which in Sanskrit are straight. A, U, and the M, the M, which is completed in the end, and that's the mysterious part which comes after, by a mysterious nasalization of the sound, which is representing a special vowel or phoneme from Sanskrit, which is called Bindu, this final nasalization, and which actually leads to the extinction of the sound, and therefore to a mysterious silence, which follows the sound. So we are having A, U, M, and then after M there comes this M, that's a nasalization that fades away. That is why, actually in the yoga meditation, remember that it is incorrect, and uh, I have myself been very stern on this as a young enthusiastic yogi, and then later, after I have lived in India for a number of years, I have simply given up any hope of ever straightening this one up. Uh, because uh, in India, at the level of the street culture, all the Babas and all the people keep saying Om, 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 Om. And Om uh, in Sanskrit, if you are a scrupulous Sanskritologist, Om means something entirely different from Aum. Because in Sanskrit, A is A, U is U, Au is Au, and O is O. That's why Aum and Om mean simply two different things. But uh, the story is long and I'm not going to resume it. It's something which comes from the predominance of the Hindi language and the putting of words into Hindi, which makes that many of the words used in yoga today they are not actually pronounced as in Sanskrit, they are pronounced as in Hindi. And the difference between Sanskrit and Hindi would be like the difference between Latin and Italian. Hindi is the modern language spoken and uh, Latin is the dead language. In the same way, nobody really speaks Sanskrit today anymore, but uh, everything is turned into Hindi. That is why in Hindi there happen many other twistings of it, which makes that when you study something Sanskritologically abroad, you go to India and it might not sound the same. For example, many people from India, instead of saying yoga, they say yog, because in, in Hindi you cut the final A. Instead of saying muladhara, what would be the Sanskrit pronunciation, they would say muladhara, because the final A goes. And there are even a lot of jokes among the Hindi people practicing yoga about the way that the stupid foreigners always put too much A's to the word in the end 
and uh, instead of yog they say yoga, and instead of muladhar they say muladhara, and so on. Which actually, strictly speaking in the Sanskritological way, is correct. But it's like the words are being taken and used uh, in another way. It's the same with this uh, story with Aum. If you take A, U, M, you can chant them separately as I am going to perform with you tonight as a simple exemplification. And uh, and then, uh, actually, when you pronounce it colloquially, you can as well say Om. Remember, if you say Om, it is conceptually wrong for your meditation, because you have destroyed the triadic structure. This mantra must be made of an A, an U, and an M, each one of them like representing something. For example, a simple implication, and again, it's a correspondence, and you should not take it uh, literally, that this is the way it is, absolutely. These are all intellectual thought lines. These are lines of thought that connect things with each other, but they don't represent an identity. If the divine in Hinduism is having a triadic nature, that of Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, and the most eminent mantra of this Ishvara, which is summed up, or the sum total of these three, is then automatically made of A, U, M, then automatically we can say that A corresponds to Brahma, U corresponds to Vishnu, and M corresponds to Shiva. And in this way I can think about the mantra Aum, as Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, and God knows how many other triadic things are there. I have heard all kind of wild interpretations that A is Jagrat or wakefulness, U is Vapna or dream, and M is Sushupti or the sleep without dreams, and of course the termination or the end is then Turiya, the state of void, the transcendental, and so on. You can make these kind of correspondences ad infinitum, because everything in the Hindu mysticism is triadic, and everything corresponds. A is Sattva, U is Rajas, M is Tamas, or why not the other way around, or whatever. It goes, or everything goes, but these are all intellectual things. They are all giving a more intellectual depth of interpretation, like, wow, what a symbolic sound this is, how much it contains in itself, how it connects with everything in the universe. Therefore, it's not a coincidence that it is a triadic sound, and therefore that it is a sacred sound, not to mention that the letters out of which it is made are like this and like that and whatever. To make the long story short, remember that when you meditate, you have to meditate on this mantra as made of three things. Om is made of two at the best. Therefore, it cannot work. You cannot meditate. Even if you don't believe what I'm telling you here, because you have heard, I don't know which great guru from India saying Om, remember that scholarly from a Yoga Sutra, and Upanishadic standpoint, it has to be triadic, it has to be made of three, and those three are the three phonemes that build it. Actually, it is not at all a coincidence that the Indian numeral system, which has actually given the numbers to the West, you know that most people call the digits, which we use today, one, two, three, and so on, 
the Arab numerals because they are like taken from the Arabs because the alternative system of numeration in Europe was the Roman numerals, uh, these Roman uh, digits, the way the Romans did it. But actually, if we are to be historically correct and it's well known, the so-called Arab numbers, they are not Arab. The Arabs took them from India. They are originally Indian, including the number zero, which didn't even exist in the Roman numerals, uh, and which is again introduced by the Indian mathematics. And therefore, these numbers come from there, and what is very relevant is that the way they have reached to us is actually a modification of the original numbers in Sanskrit. Any one of you who would bother to take a book of Sanskrit and to study the way the numbers are written in Sanskrit, you are going to identify in a, a rather distorted form, and I don't want to go to the details, there are some funny differences, but you are going to identify the numbers that we use today in another way, and you are going to see without any doubt that the source of numbers is actually in even in the Sanskrit script. <coughs> and now let's come to what I wanted to say. Even the famous mantra Aum, which here is written in a stylized way on the board, is actually nothing else but a number three, if you look carefully. It's just a three written in a more colorful way, and with a tail and with a dot over, and all those things which are typical phonemic additions. Therefore, the mantra Aum is a three mantra, is a triadic mantra compulsorily, even its script shows us all these are connected. And that is why when you meditate with this mantra, automatically you need to meditate on its triadic structure and on this thing that we are talking about three and something. This mantra expresses the three basic energies or realities plus as a perfume included in it, as something included there, it's kind of the perfume of the transcendent. Something which surpasses those three, but which cannot be properly expressed in a mantric way by a letter, by a phoneme. The yogis consider, just to give you the full impact of that, that actually this sound of the mantra Aum amounts in the most uh, refined forms of sound, of inner sound, which are generally termed in yoga under the name of nada, this internal sound which is no letter, which is beyond all the letters, which is beyond all the articulation, and which represents the very sonorous form of the divine, of the divine energy. Therefore, Patanjali here does not give all these explanations, uh, many explanations are given by some of the later commentators who wanted to clarify this subject. And for the reason, because of this reason, actually for many people this Aum remains a mystery. You read in the Yoga Sutra, which is supposed to be authoritative, that Aum is the sound, the mantra which symbolizes the Supreme. Ah, hooray, I have got a real fundamental piece of information. <laughs> and then usually the person gets stuck at that level because yes, right, and what comes next? 
Next comes what? That I'm going to take a mala and I'm starting to mumble. Aum, aum, or om, 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 om. And that doesn't seem to get me anywhere. And then I'm a bit disappointed. What is this big fuss about this om, or aum, or whatever it is? Because it doesn't really seem, I mean, if it is, if it would be so obvious, so evident, so, then, uh, you know, it's kind of, why don't I see it? Why can't we see it immediately? And therefore, this comes automatically because of this ignorance which concerns the mechanisms of mantras and the subtle sounds. You in this school, having been blessed with the teaching of Laya Yoga, and understanding exactly what this is spoke, what, what this is all about, then automatically you can derive more advantage, because the technology of Laya Yoga that you have learned, of course applies identically with Aum, and Aum being such a beautiful mantra, such a fundamental mantra, then automatically it is worth all the way of going into that direction. That is why, here, Patanjali opens the doors to a very important meditation and to a very important <coughs> realization. I would like to do a little bit with you to introduce you a little bit into this because it's a practical element of the Yoga Sutra, but I can do that only if I read one or two more sutras quickly commenting on some of their things, so in this way you can relate totally to what Patanjali says. The next sutra, which is 28, says that this bija, Aum, should be recited repeatedly while probing mentally its meaning, and therefore at a simple level, without making again the theory of Laya Yoga and all the rest, should not be forgotten then that the sonorous pronunciation of a mantra acts predominantly at a physiological level because it's on the gross body, while the mental pronunciation acts upon a mental and spiritual level. And this Bija mantra, uh, he says not only that you should repeat it, which is the mental repetition obviously, but it says while probing mentally, it's meaning, which means it's like, it's a meditation. There is, a, he doesn't say anything about the sound and the nada. These are a secret technical part of yoga, which is more belonging to the tantric system, and Patanjali is not giving too much commentaries in the tantric understanding, because he is not coming from there, from that direction. But at the same time says that there should exist a mental understanding. He says, probing mentally, it's meaning like pondering mentally upon its meaning. And what would its meaning be? Oh, that I is Brahma, U is Vishnu, M is Shiva, and all the other things, that actually the three letters represent three energies, which are like a ladder of three energies. And after you build these three basic energies, these three basic steps of the universe, then automatically, beyond that, you have uh, perhaps the way Shakespeare puts it in Hamlet, the rest is all but silence. It's kind of, what comes next is the transcendence, the mystery, 
So exactly in the same way we can paraphrase Shakespeare and uh, talk about Aum saying that it involves three steps, three energies, and the rest is the great mystery, the silence, or anyhow an energy which is not describable as letters and therefore by mental concepts and an energy which is therefore the essence of peace, the essence of silence, the essence of spirituality. And this being said, it simply means that Patanjali says you need to have not just a mechanical parrot-like repetition, you need to have a dwelling on the meaning. This uh, is a procedure which even uh, surpasses some of the elements of Laya Yoga, or actually in Laya Yoga this comes uh, through another energetic mechanism, because uh, some, form, some yogis from India call this state of mind as working on a mantra, and they perhaps don't mention this audition of the sound, of the inner sound, but they call this state a state of smarana, which means a kind of constant remembrance, that you remember that you are working with this sound, you are this sound, and kind of you dwell on it. You are not like a robot losing completely track, but you are all the time full of the meaning that this is the basic tone of the universe, that this is the triadic sound of the universe, that this is this and that. And therefore, uh, again, the results that to meditation itself, you should add a kind of sort of constant remembrance of the nature of this sound upon which you are dwelling. And he ends by saying, and this sutra I'm going to resume it next time because it makes connection to the next subject, but it is fit to mention it here. He ends this by saying, from this practice, the consciousness turns inward, which means one is going towards the self, towards the Atman, first Jivatman and then the higher Atman, and the obstacles are overcome. He simply says, this practice is giving the knowledge of Atman, the first the Jivatman, then the full Atman, and therefore it gives interiorization, but at the same time the obstacles are overcome. The obstacles, as you might have realized by now in yoga, are also mentioning obstacles of a karmic nature, because it is karma which basically gives anything that we can call obstacles. And the fact that Patanjali says the obstacles are overcome, automatically tends to point to the fact that there occurs a karmic purification. Some of the karmic limitations can be eliminated through the practice of this mantra, through the practice of Aum as described by Patanjali. Therefore, Patanjali gives us a superlative advice here, one of the very first practical things and one of the or one of the essential practical things that we find at this stage of Yoga Sutra. And since we are here in a practical school where yoga is uh, done practically, we will conclude tonight's lecture by going a little bit precisely into this meditation.
I am not going to give you the full Nyasa initiation for this mantra because each mantra needs a Nyasa initiation. In this school I am giving, we are giving the initiation of this mantra at some point when you learn it in the proper process of yoga. I am going to transmit the, for you the knowledge of this mantra and the possibility to meditate with it according to the standard technology of the TM system of the so-called transcendental meditation as called in the West by Maharishi which is actually a traditional yogic meditation from the Himalayas so that you can be able to pronounce internally this mantra and meditate on its meaning by repeating it internally like a sort of a mental japa and if from this repetition you are going even deeper into the laya yoga stages and you start uh, melting into the resulting sounds and all the rest of the technology which I hope you remember from our lessons on uh, laya yoga then of course this is even to the better this will become even deeper and this being said let us now go into it. I'm going to tune for you, to sing for you, the three basic phonemes of the mantra Aum. And then after I do that once, I want you to do it together with me three times over. Which means I am going to do it four times, and you are going to do it three times. Because first time I will do it alone, so that you can just see what is going to be so that the second time you can do it right. So, follow me please, I'm not going to speak anymore, I'm just going to do it, then when I'm inhaling, you will have to follow automatically, inhale also, and join me for the second, the third, and the fourth enunciation. Try to doze your breath, because uh, you need to prolong the sound. Don't do it neither too loud nor too low. And when we finish the four enunciations, then in your mind you try simply to repeat the sound, not as protracted, I want to insist on this because even I, when I learned this first time, I thought that I had to do it like this, long, 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 and then I found out that it was a mistake, that in your mind you don't do the same, in your mind, the mantra Aum is simply a mantra exactly as you would pronounce it for a simple chanting. Aum. It's simply a round, simple sound. It's nothing uh, mysterious, only that the end it seems to be a bit of a nasalized, fading sound. This being said, here I go into the enunciation, then three times together with you and then we'll stay in silence for a bit of meditation at the level of Ajna Chakra and Sahasrara with this fundamental divine symbol. I will start.
Ömer Kuzum, bu bir sürü hepimiz farklı